Double Trouble, this is Chloe. This is Tess. And we fucking hate men. Let's fucking go. Let's start this shit. I'm ready. It's a Tuesday around 6 p.m. And we're angry. We're ready to fight. I got, um, I got Sonic. I'm not angry. I'm, I'm always ready. But first of all, Tess said she's not feeling super well today. Yeah. So she may sound a little different. I also may sound a little different. I have a tongue piercing now. And I've only had it for a couple days. I see so. Interesting. So, yeah, you just, that all just happened. You guys all just heard that. But, my tongue is swollen, so occasionally you can kind of hear this little lisp situation going on. Oh, you sounded fine until you said something, and now I'm like, hmm. Well, it's it's kind of noticeable, but it, only on specific words, but just my tongue is swollen. Just talk with your tongue out. My tongue is swollen. Let's go ahead and move on to part two of our story. You didn't get to tell, like... Well, I don't feel well. I don't feel well because I have allergies. Oh, I'm sorry. Do you think they care? Do you think they care? You have a tongue ring. Hell yeah, because I sound different. Because I sound different. Well, I sound different different too. Also, it's not a tongue ring. It's a fucking piercing, bitch. Okay, do we want to end right now? Stop being shady as fuck. Hell yeah, let's fucking go. Let's fucking go. Stop being shady. Ah ha ha. No. Ah ha ha. So, we left off last time. This is part two of the story of John Robinson, a.k.a. J-Rob. You know? <laughs> we left off. We talked about his early life, early crimes, him trying to kind of redeem himself as a family man with a family man persona by, what do you know, committing even more crimes. Ugh, love that. And his first murders, Paula Godfrey and Lisa Stacy. So, we left off at... The last thing we heard from John Robinson was the fact that he had given his brother and his sister-in-law a newborn baby girl. Mm -hmm. I mean, like half half a year old baby girl. I guess she wasn't technically newborn at that point, but she was still young. And that was in 1985-1986. So we're going to pick up with his next unfortunate victim. Her name is Catherine Clampett. If you haven't listened to part one, you might want to skirt back to the last episode on our page. It is titled John Robinson, part one. And go Context ahead and take clues. a look. Context clues. If you can't figure out there's a part <laughs> one, guys, <laughs> it's natural selection. I love you so much, but please. Go ahead and listen to that part one episode. That'll give you all the deets on John Robinson's early life, his early crimes, and his first couple murders. Would you like a prequel on how this man is a piece of shit? Well, listen to part one. In 1987, he is going to meet his next victim, Catherine Clampett, who is 27 at the time. And she is going to leave her child with her parents in Wichita Falls, Texas. She's going to move to Kansas City, where John is at the time, to find employment. She moves there because she's hired by Robinson, who apparently was going to promise her extensive travel and a new wardrobe for this new job. That sounds a little, uh, a little, little fake to me, but you know. A little sus. We'll go with it. You know what, though? Catherine I, went with it. I can't believe people like to travel for work. They'd be like, you're going to have to travel a lot. It and sounds say, exciting when you're when you're a single up. mom who yeah. like, is, has been staying home for the past year because she's a mom. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. And you feel like your life is like flashing in front of you because you had a child like at a young Whoa, age. You sound like That's, you've been through this. Um, I have guinea pigs. I would know. Me. 
my children, I would know. So Captain Clampett travels all the way to Kansas City to meet up with John Robinson. She leaves her one-year-old son with her parents in Texas because she was kind of on a wild streak before this, apparently. And her parents said, listen, you need to buckle down, you need to get a job, and once you're kind of settled, and once you're, like, everything is fine again, you can come back and get him. Wow, they took the whole child. That, I'm yeah. shook. Well, I'm shook. It, it, was, it was like a mutual decision from what I, That's really from what I researched. I, just, well, I can't believe that. So here's the thing. They, they thought that the son would be kind of a distraction, and they really wanted her to find some decent work. Yeah. So that's the first, like, one of the best things that she found, apparently. Mm-hmm. So she went to go move in with her adopted brother in Kansas, because she was adopted. So she moves in with her brother while she's in Kansas uh, City. And she, apparently the first couple of weeks, she would call her family all the, all the time back home in Texas and talk about all her travels that she was doing. So she was traveling a little bit at first. Yeah. Around the United States. And she seemed really happy with her job at first. Then she goes missing in June of that same year. Her missing persons case is going to open up on June 15th. <gasps> but her family believes that she had actually been missing since May, but they couldn't get a hold of her. Wow. So unfortunately, that case is going to remain open to this day. Again, she is one of the victims, victims that unfortunately was not found. Wow. So, piece um, of shit. Anyway. Yeah, so what happens is her adopted brother in Kansas was like, yo, this is not right. Where is she? And he goes to her place of work, the office that John Robinson owns, and apparently it's cleared out and no one's there because John is going to jail. He has been incarcerated on a couple counts of fraud convictions that he committed first in Kansas in 1987 and then to 1981. So he gets incarcerated from 1987 to 1993 and during that time they keep finding things to like charge him with. So uh-huh. he eventually stays until 1993 in prison. That's my goal. Um, so, excuse me, he stays in Kansas prison from 1987 to 1981 on multiple fraud convictions. So that's why... Basically, Catherine's brother goes to the offices and they're like, dude, he's not even here anymore. Like, her boss isn't here. He's literally getting indicted. Like, he's sentenced right now. I love how they just said another one. They pulled an Uno reverse on that man for six years. So there was nothing that, like, there was nothing that the family could do because, you know, they file a missing persons case and by the time that it gets looked into, like, John's in jail and there's no other leads. No, yeah, that makes sense. So he spends his first couple years in Kansas in a jail and then he is uh, transferred over to a jail in Missouri for another fraud conviction and parole violations that he had committed there. So basically he had charges in both Kansas and Missouri mm-hmm. and they just they were concurrent sentences. So he went from Kansas to Missouri. In summer 1989, apparently he suffered a couple small strokes which left him with some neurological damage in prison, <clears throat> but he could still speak and act fine apparently. So mm-hmm. he just had to like kind of rehabilitate a little bit oh okay yeah i was like yeah. what type of neurological damage so it, they were small so Motor it skills? was it was probably like you know when people have strokes and they don't even realize it yeah it was probably one of those so that might have been impacted his actions later but he's still a piece of shit so i don't really think it did too much yeah i don't yeah i'm not gonna um, blame a stroke in jail he also finds a new skill with computers and he'll use that later when he becomes the slave master in online BDSM chat rooms. He said computer in hand. He starts to work in the library at the Western Missouri Correctional Facility where he meets a 49-year-old woman named Beverly Bonner and she's the prison librarian. So he meets Beverly Bonner and apparently they spend a lot of time in the library together because he starts working in the library 
and they spend a lot of time talking about computers, their life. She talks to him about how she's unhappy in his in her marriage, and he, you know, does the typical John thing and tries to put on the moves and charm her, and apparently it works, I guess. Upon his release in 1993, she leaves her husband because her husband kind of finds out about the affair. Mm-hmm. And he was the prison doctor, like, which was crazy. So they both worked at the prison. I'm just like, girly. I don't think she's making a lot of, like, he's not making a lot of money, though, if he's but a prison doctor. But he's probably making more money than John is. John I'm is in more debt. Money than she is, dude. John's in debt. Like, John is, liar, steals though. all his money. John's like, a liar. Though. John has no money. He steals it. Like, But does she know that? No. Exactly. So she moves to Kansas to be with him and to actually work for him. So he revives his old company under the name of Beverly Bonner. This is that hydroponics company that he wanted to start in the first episode, Mm -hmm. which is like growing plants in something besides soil with like water or whatever. We talked about it a little bit. So he tries to revive that company because it didn't really go anywhere the first time he he tried to start it. And he purchases, at this point, he purchases a third storage unit and drops off all of her belongings along with a 55-gallon barrel a little bit after this. So he had two storage units before that he owned with Nancy. Let me upgrade ya. Sorry. So Bonner goes missing, and we can only assume what's in one of those 55-gallon barrels that he dropped off at the storage unit with all her belongings. After... Robinson arranges for Bonner's $1,000 monthly alimony checks from uh, Dr. Bonner to be forwarded to a Kansas post office under his false name, James Turner, and her family never hears from her again, like, in person. They get letters and stuff like that. Oh, um, my God. You know, like, I'm doing great, like, blah, blah, blah. You know, he sent, he even sends letters to her ex-husband just to, like, <gasps> like basically, like, I'm fine, da-da-da, the whole spiel that he does where he gets their signatures yeah. on, on letters and then he sends them out. That's just weird to me. I would never. So, for several years, Bonner's mother is going to continue forwarding her alimony checks and Robinson is going to continue cashing them. I think he did that for, like, six years. Authorities are going to believe that Bonner died in 1994. So... He wasn't even out for a year, and he already kills someone else. Or, like, two years. Ugh. He already kills someone else. So, with the arrival of the internet around this time and, it, and its increasing popularity, John Robinson is going to take that skill that he learned in jail working with computers, and he is going to apply that to his M.O., he set up five computers in his home, of which he went on to various chat rooms and set up several monikers for himself, including Jim Turner and Slave Master. He would use that name, Slave Master, as his username. It was like the early 90s, so he basically, you know, that that username wasn't taken. He didn't have to be Slave Master 69 yet. Noob Slayer 64. Yeah, he did not have to be uh, Slave Master 002. Bad Bitch 010333. So, he would roam various, I guess it wasn't really social networking sites at the time, but it was chat rooms, using that name, Slave Master, and basically he would look for women who enjoyed playing the submissive role in sex and who were interested in BDSM in general. He would tell women that he would take care of them and he would lie about who he was, how much money he had, and his background. He would basically tell them that you know, that he was going to take them away to see the world. They would sail on his yacht or fly to Europe. They would travel around Europe. He said they'd be so busy that they would need to sign several pieces of blank paper so that way they didn't have to worry about that later, which is really weird. Like, that doesn't even really make sense to me. It's like, why would I sign it? Like, that takes two seconds. Why wouldn't I just sign it? Like, you know what I mean? Sign it You're when I write it. You're not going to have enough time to write letters. We'll be so busy traveling around the world. So I'll just have do? someone else to write them for you. Just make sure you sign them. That's weird. 
I would be like, mm, I'm going to write my own letters. That's weird. So, I don't know. That's He gets away with it, though. Multiple you said women. independent women. Like, multiple women do that. And I'm just like, dude, what, how does if, that make sense? But it, honestly, if you're, being promised no the, if you're being promised the world, and that's like the one caveat, and that's your one he wants you flag, to do, I guess. If you're seeing the world through rose-tinted glasses. Yeah, you're like, I guess I better do this. The flags are going to look neutral. He's like, they're like, I, best, I, I, bet I, I guess I better do this because... If I don't, he's going to drop me and move on to some other trick. I guess that makes sense. Okay. So later he would use these pieces of paper and he would type basically messages on them. And they would be signed at the bottom so the families would think it was from the person. Love that. He meets one of the earlier people he meets in the chat rooms is going to be named Sheila Faith. She is was 45 and she lived off of welfare and social security checks after her husband Johnny Faith died. She went to chat rooms because she was really, really lonely mm-hmm. because she took care of her 15-year-old daughter Debbie who had cerebral palsy yeah. and she was confined to a wheelchair. Can you imagine in like, was this the 90s? Yeah. I feel like, I think this was, like, before stem cell research and stuff. Like, there was no one to help. Yeah. That is the absolute So, and worst. they, and she basically had to use all their money to help pay for the oh medical bills and stuff gosh. like that. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Just all that. So, this appeal of John Robinson and, you know, what he was promising her would, it, it sounded like a very good deal to her. And she actually moved multiple places for other men wow. before John Robinson. So, wow. this is kind of like a... A uh, pattern for her where she finds someone online and they promise her the world. They say, you know, move in with me. So she goes to California first. She meets a guy there. I'm pretty sure he was abusive. So she leaves. (gasps) And then she meets another guy in Colorado and does that as well. So this is the third person that she'll do this for Mm -hmm. before, unfortunately, she dies. Robinson portrays himself as a wealthy businessman to her and a philanthropist, and he offers to pay Debbie's medical expenses and give Sheila a job in the meantime as well. That's literally the worst, man. So in 1994, this is the same year that Beverly Bonner dies. (gasps) Holy shit! The mother and the daughter are going to move to Kansas City and immediately disappear. Holy shit. Robinson cashes Faith's pension checks for the next seven years. Yeah. Piece of shit. Yeah. Gradually, Robinson is going to become well-known in the BDSM online chat rooms. They're going to become more and more popular. And he changes one of the rooms in his house to that office that I started talking about and starts Mm. working from home. But really what he's doing when he's working from home is probably pursuing these online relationships. You know what's bad about that, too, is if people know him, they're going to vouch for him online. What do you mean? Like, if it becomes really well-known in these online chats, people are going to be like, oh, yeah, I know... I know fucking Slave Master. He's fine. Like, no, yeah. I'm pretty sure one of them was doing that, actually. Like, he was doing that on behalf of... It's a victim coming up. One of the victim's friends was, like, trying to get in touch with her and was also in the uh, BDSM chat rooms. And eventually, like, Mm -hmm. he started posing as the victim and telling this woman to start talking to John (gasps) and tried to get another victim that way. Oh, my God. So he was trying to use one of his victim's accounts to, like, vouch for him. So it's funny that you say that. Yeah, dude. So he is going to develop these relationships online, and he's going to develop them with women who call themselves slaves. They're the slaves in the, you know, slave-master relationship. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, they're going to sign something called slave contracts. And several of them actually believed that these contracts were legally binding. So these contracts basically said that John Robinson had control of their time, their money, their like feelings, literally like everything and anything. And again, 
for some reason, these women thought they were, like, legally binding contracts because, you know, they pro- they probably didn't know any better, and John Robinson is literally, like, a manipulator times 10,000, yeah. so he's, like, a master manipulator. The next victim that we know about is a girl named Isabella Luica in 1999, so this is, like, a couple years later. Yeah. So they think that there was victims in the meantime, but there's no proof, you know? Investigators think that John Robinson had a lot of victims, but unfortunately they were only able to find evidence for so many. Yeah. So five years cooling off period, like I don't believe that. Yeah, no, I don't either. In 1999, he's going to offer her a job and a bondage relationship to her. She's a 21-year-old Polish immigrant and (laughs) art student who is living in Indiana. She had moved to America with her parents at age 15 in 1993. Someone who was such a bad bitch would be like, yeah, let me get in this bondage relationship. So apparently she was like very goth and very, (laughs) and and she would get made fun of for that and stuff like that. So she was kind of like an outcast. So she was kind of like, to begin with, not to say that like goth people are like weirdos or anything like that, but she was like the typical stereotype, I guess you could say. Yeah, you can't walk around with like white face paint on and people not think you're weird because you only do that if you're a clown or goth. And yeah, like, so... Gotta so, be honest with you, Chief. Most people don't accept that. Yeah, which is... I know, it sucks, but... She was kind of an outcast, and she felt that this was a good... This was a good opportunity to pursue, I guess, and she yeah. was really into BDSM. Yeah. So, she moves to Kansas City, and Robinson actually buys her an apartment... And at one point gives her an engagement ring. And this isn't the first time that he's done that. Like, Ooh. he would buy, um, he would, like, rent apartments for these women. He would rent hotel rooms. Like, he would, like, do all these things with all this money that he's stealing and making and whatever. So he buys her an engagement ring and actually brought her to the county registrar at one point where they paid for a marriage license, but they never actually picked it up. And he couldn't actually marry her because he was still married to Nancy. <gasps> Shut the fuck up. Yeah, he's, he's married to Nancy this whole fucking time. Oh my god. And Nancy, apparently, they decided, I can't remember at what point this was, but apparently they decided that they were going to stay married for their kids and their grandkids, but it was going to be basically an open relationship because she knew about all the affairs. <gasps> she just thought it was affairs. She knew about all the affairs that John was having, and she was like, this isn't fair to me. We'll only stay together in title, basically. Bad bitch. I mean, I guess. She should have just divorced him. I wouldn't... (laughs) Like, it's hard to say. Like, it's very hard to say because they were raised in that kind of thing. It's like, don't get divorced. But at the same time, it's like, this man has gone to jail for, like, years and years, and, like, you're still with him. Like... Yeah. At that point, I'd be like, "Mm, bye. And she doesn't even know about the murders at this point. She just knows that he's a cheater, and he's, like, a felon. Yeah. So, it's not a legal marriage because he's still married to Nancy, but however, Luwicka still believed that she and Robinson were married. Uh, she told her parents that she had married, but she never actually told them her husband's name, and she did sign a 115-item slave contract that gave Robinson Whoa. almost total control over every aspect of her life, including her bank accounts. But again, this literally isn't legally binding, but she thinks it is. Yeah, of course. So she tells her parents that she was traveling for work with her job, and she also, at one point, registers under the last name Robinson, so she thought she was married. Dude, um, holy shit. To a local community college. <gasps> Sometime during the summer of 1999, literally the same year he meets her, she disappears. Of course. And when asked about it, Robinson told a web designer that was apparently like mutual friends with both of them that he, uh, that he employed, basically. So he employed this web designer, and he was like, where did... Isabella go like why why is she missing and he said that she had been caught smoking marijuana and was deported back to Poland yeah 
which is so not true, but you know, at, at that time it's like, oh yeah, okay, that's like a really bad crime, dude. Yeah, bad drug man. So he's, he told some people that, and he told her family that, like, I don't even think her family, like, reached out to try and find her, actually, because they thought that she was traveling around Europe, like, this whole time. Yeah, I mean, like... And they were still receiving, like, emails and letters from her, Mm -hmm. detailing her travels around Europe, so they weren't worried at all, Mm -hmm. which is weird, because it's like, you don't hear from someone over the phone after a while, I'd be like, okay. I mean, maybe she was always distant with her family, though, too. Yeah. I mean, she was an outcast, so I wouldn't be surprised if she also may have been, like, a black sheep in her family. Yeah, And frankly, didn't want to pursue a relationship with them. Yeah, and didn't have a good relationship with them in general. Yeah, so, I mean... So, That's, like, the one victim, though. The rest of them, it's, like, weird. Yeah. And, as well, especially because they're also immigrants as well, so they probably have that English language barrier, and mm-hmm. it's just, it's a, it's kind of a, something, yeah. like, a front to put up, I guess yeah. you could say. The same year, he and Nancy are going to purchase a 16-acre property, which they called the farm, and while they're moving in and moving stuff around, he's going to ask a maintenance man from the park that the acres are in to help move a trailer onto the property, which also included a few 55-gallon drums. Ew! The last officially known victim of John Robinson was a licensed practical nurse named Suzette Troughton, and this is actually the victim that I was talking about where he... Oh, um, yeah. One okay. of... He, she went missing, and he tried to pursue one of her friends in the BDSM <gasps> chat room. Ew! Posing as her. Ew! So, in 1999, she's 28, she's from Newport, Michigan, and she moves to Kansas to travel the world with Robinson as his submissive sex slave. So, at first he persuades these women with work, and he still kind of does, but he also, like, persuades them with the, you know, he's the slave master, they're gonna do whatever he says yeah. type of thing. Which is very, like, kind of a, like, extreme version of BDSM, I would say. Yeah, like this is a very like manipulative and uh, toxic version of BDSM for and because he's murdering them and he's promising things that aren't true. Yes, there. I mean, frankly, I don't support master slave relationships. I don't really like them, but there can be ones that are successful and that do work out. That's you know that's their thing, but like (sighs) that's cool if if it's in the end it's not killing someone. But I'm just saying, no, this yeah, is extremely toxic. He's because, taking advantage of the yeah, situation. Yeah, and these women think that, you know, they're legally bound mm-hmm. to be his. Like, no, that's yeah, not how that he's works. He's taking advantage of their trust, yeah. and that's not something that... So, that's also part of his MO at this exactly. point. Mm-hmm. Uh, he persuades her. He actually tells her that she's going to be working as a caretaker for his elderly father at the time. <sighs> but in reality, his dad is dead and has been dead at many years for this point. So, that's just another, like part of the web of lies that he's spun yeah at this point so he's like you'll have a job i'll be your slave master like we'll have travels like we'll do all these great things together and she's like great this sounds awesome so she moves to kansas troughton's mother receives several typed letters signed by her daughter they were supposedly mailed while they were like abroad in europe but all the envelopes had kansas city postmarks so it's kind of like why the fuck that's like, I literally... It's like, oh, did the letters from uh, the UK stop in Kansas? Like, they well, did, sorry, actually. Like, I mean, it's just... Kansas on their way to Michigan, like, did they stop? international mail. So, and also, uncharacteristically of Suzanne, the letters were all, like, mistake-free, and they mm-hmm. weren't typed... Su- First of all, Suzanne couldn't really type very well. Second of all, she couldn't spell very well so it was just like a one two like you know three strikes you're out my favorite thing about this is she's like first of all my daughter's a fucking idiot (laughs) i mean if you if you were texting me and i and it was like not how you usually would text i'd be like who the fuck is this like you know what i mean you know the way that people speak i don't know man 
You know the way that people speak. I don't think I speak a specific way. So she gets worried after she doesn't hear from her daughter, like, over the phone, because apparently they were really, really close, Mm -hmm. and they would call each other all the time. Number one, screw up, Mr. Robinson. You pick victims that are close with their parents. She would call her mom, like, all the time. So her mom's not hearing her from her. She's getting these letters that don't sound like her daughter either. She is going to get worried, and she actually calls Robinson and starts this whole, like... String of conversations with him because he she had his phone number mm-hmm. and while he while her daughter goes missing she's calling Robinson saying hey have you heard from Suzette and Robinson at one point tells her mom that she had run off with an acquaintance after stealing money from him so Suzette's mom is like well that doesn't really sound like Suzette yeah. either but at this point Robinson is telling her I haven't seen her like I don't know where she is I don't know where she is and I can't help you and. The authorities at this point are becoming more and more aware of John Robinson. Like, they're kind of, like, catching on to Mm -hmm. all these women missing and disappearing around him. So they're actually working with Carolyn to try and, like, get him on the phone saying something about Suzette. Yeah. But he's very... He didn't say anything. He was Mm -hmm. pretty, like, smart about that. So eventually, Carolyn um, told investigators, she was like... Wherever my daughter's dogs are, she had two Pekingese dogs, Pika and Harry. Wherever those dogs are, you need to find them because that's where my daughter's going to be. So police then discovered two dogs that had been found um, abandoned at a trailer park where Robinson had a trailer on March 1st, 2000, the same day that Suzette disappeared. Oh, God. Animal control was called and workers came and took the dogs. Eventually, they get adopted out from the pound, basically. And the detectives track one of them down, and he calls the dog by its name, and it actually responds. Oh, God. So he was like, Pika, and the dog responds. So that's that's how they know that it was Suzette's dogs. Oh, my God. They realize that the dogs likely belong to Suzette, and that she could be dead. If she doesn't have her dogs, basically her mom is like, she's dead. She wouldn't go anywhere without those dogs. He was my cat. Oh, my God. So, and they were very, very confident that Robinson was involved. They were the last people to... To, he was the last person to see her. Of course. The dogs were found at his literal trailer park. Yeah, sus. No. So, getting to the investigation, like I said, over time, Robinson is going to become really, really careless and do a progressively poor job of covering his tracks. Mm-hmm. And by 1999, around the same time as Suzette, he had attracted the attention of authorities in both Kansas and Missouri because his name keeps popping up of course. in more and more of these missing persons investigations. Ugh. And police start actually following Robinson and watching his every move, like, nine to five. They're tracking and trailing this guy. (laughs) And that's going to include trips to his his 16 acres of property that he had in Kansas. And into town, it's going to include Robinson going to hotels all the time. Like, and then at five o'clock on the dot, he goes back home to his family and acts like a family man. That is so uncomfortable. Yeah, so during the day, he goes off to, like, work, Mm quote-unquote. And then... He comes back at 5 p.m. to his wife, who I guess they have an open relationship, but, you know, he comes back home and acts like everything is fine. Pretend. Yeah. During the investigation into Suzette Troughton's disappearance, police Mm -hmm. go through Robinson's trash at the house. It's a common thing in investigations. If you leave trash out on the curb, it's public property. So they go through one of the trash bags and they basically take the trash and replace it with other bags of trash so that the people don't get suspicious, which is like, you know, who goes back to look at their trash after they throw it away, but just in case. So they take the trash, they find a bag of shredded documents, which they tried to piece back together. 
and one of the documents that they were able to put back together helps them locate the storage units that belonged to John Robinson in Raymore, Missouri. Mm. Also in the meantime, police are going to continue to follow him around, and he actually brings women from all over the United States and puts them up in hotels. So he's constantly visiting these hotels all the time while he's out and about traveling like 9 to 5. Ew! And the investigators would rent adjoining rooms and try and get some kind of, like, evidence on him. No, ma'am. It didn't really work. That's Um, uncomfortable. So they would try and get some kind of evidence on him while he was having, like, sexual encounters with women next door. And apparently it was very hard to tell as the investigators what was consensual and what was not because BDSM is very violent. It can be. Yeah. So, you know, that results in noises happening. So it was hard to tell whether it was consensual or not, but since they knew he was so into this BDSM scene, they didn't want to, like, ruin the investigation and go in. So they didn't. Robinson is going to be arrested in June 2000 because a woman filed sexual a sexual battery complaint against him. And another woman charged him with stealing some of her sex toys. I think like $500 worth. So these two charges against him are going to allow the police to come up with a search warrant specifically for the sex toys. But this is really to like just get the dirt on Robinson and try and find anything they can to find these missing women. Yeah. So he's arrested near his farm in Kansas. The theft charge helps them get that probable cause, like I said. And they confiscate his computer from his mobile home. And in that mobile trailer park. Yeah. And on the farm, a task force finds the decaying bodies of two women in those 55-barrel drums. One of them was identified as Isabella Lewicka, and the second one was identified as Suzette Troughton. So there's the big bang right there. Yeah. They got him. They got him on two bodies. They have a bunch more missing persons that they need to try and find. Yeah. So across the state lines in Missouri, they're going to go search that storage unit that he also owns. And they find three similar chemical drums, and those contain corpses that are eventually going to be identified as Beverly Bonner, Sheila Faith, and Debbie Faith, Sheila Faith's daughter. I can't believe... Okay, like, I know it's bad to kill people, but you also killed the disabled child. I know. How bad is that? Like, like someone a, who can't even fight back. You're a monster. And, and the... Um, it was it was found that they were all killed the same way with one or more blows to the head from behind. Yeah. So, this guy is a coward, and he can't even, like, let them try and have a fight in, oh, in the way that they die. Like, it's all from behind. Yeah, of course. Typical. So, it was believed that the murder weapon was hammers that they found as well. And apparently, kitty litter had been... And put down in the garages to mask the smell because the barrels were in such a bad state of disintegration apparently that's actually a legit thing yeah yeah we're gonna move on to the conviction and the trials he has two trials one in kansas and one in missouri okay the first one's in kansas the why and the how are the murder weapon at which authorities recover about 18 hammers from john robinson's property and the motive we know this it's going to be for money alimony checks pension checks everything like that okay basically whatever these women own that's valuable he's probably also going to keep in 2002 two years after he's arrested he gets to the trial Mm -hmm. and he stands trial in kansas first for the murders of troughton lewicka and stacy okay lisa stacy that is yes but they didn't find her body at this point Mm -hmm. so They also have him on some multiple lesser charges as well. After the longest criminal trial in Kansas history, with more than 23,000 pages of police reports and more than 100 witnesses, he's convicted on all counts. Good. 
He receives the death sentence for the murders of Troughton and Lewicka because mm-hmm. they have their bodies and life imprisonment for Stacy's murder because she was killed before Kansas reinstated the death penalty. So he didn't get the death penalty for that since that, like, yeah, I guess it, what's it called? Or the 25 years thing? It's like when a, when a case goes bad because it's been too long. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. The name. Statute of limitations. Yes. So I think because the case happened, like she died at that time, they have to apply the law at that time. No, yeah, you're correct. So that's that was the law at that time. The death mm-hmm. penalty was not reinstated. So he got two death sentences and life imprisonment. Yep, you're correct. He also receives a 5 to 20 year prison sentence for interfering with parental custody of Stacy's baby, <sighs> Tiffany. Oh baby God. Tiffany, who had been given to his brother and his sister-in-law. This is like 20, I mean, oh, he, he gets 20 and a half years for kidnapping Troughton. It was considered a kidnapping. Yeah. And seven months for theft, like miscellaneous theft, I guess. Me too. <laughs> They're like, just was throw that on Yeah, yeah that was life. one of the lesser charges. They and, like and so it was the, the kidnapping and the interfering with the parental custody. They're yeah. Like, and here's seven months. Well, they have to like, they want to throw like everything yeah. they have because they're like, one of these has to stick. Baby. Throw the book at them. Yeah, basically. I feel like I'm on Law and Order SVU. <laughs> so after he gets done with his trial in Kansas, they extradite him to Missouri mm-hmm. and he faces additional murder charges there based on the evidence discovered in that state. Course. Missouri is far more aggressive in its pursuit of capital punishment convictions in contrast to Kansas that hasn't executed anyone since reinstating its death penalty statute in 1994. Mm-hmm. Robinson's attorneys were anxious to avoid trial there. I'm not exactly sure why. He's already on death row. I guess if I guess if they appeal the the cases in Kansas, maybe if he doesn't get a death sentence, like he can spend the rest of his life in jail. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So they were really trying to avoid a trial though. Chris Coster, the Missouri prosecutor, insisted as a condition of any plea bargain that Robinson lead authorities to the bodies of Stacy, Godfrey, and Clampett. Remember, those are the three people mm-hmm. that haven't been found mm-hmm. ever. Robinson, who never ever has cooperated in any way with investigators, refused, but Coster still faced pressure to make a deal with him because his case wasn't technically airtight. Yeah. There were holes in it. Mm-hmm. Among other issues, there was no evidence that any of the murders had actually been committed within his jurisdiction at all. Exactly. So the defense could poke holes in the case and and reasonable doubt. And he could get an acquittal basically. Robinson could get an acquittal and you don't want that to happen. You can't charge for the same crime twice. Yep. So, it was a very very tense situation and Coster unfortunately had to enter into a plea bargain with Robinson. Yeah. Robinson, on the other hand, is going to face the pressure to plead guilty to avoid an almost certain death sentence in Missouri and failing that, another capital murder trial back in Kansas. Mm-hmm. When it becomes clear that the woman's remains are, were never going to be found without Robinson's help, a compromise was reached. In a carefully scripted plea bargain in October 2003, Robinson acknowledges that Coster had enough evidence to convict him of capital murder for the deaths of Godfrey, Clampett, Bonner, and the Fates, but he never actually takes responsibility mm-hmm. or accepted acceptance of any crimes. Yeah, so he basically says, he basically said you have enough you have enough to convict me, but I'm not saying I'm guilty, but here you go. 
Exactly. And they both got what they needed, I guess. Robinson yeah. entered in a plea deal. Um, Coster entered in a plea deal as well to get him in jail, but unfortunately, they never find the bodies of those victims because Robinson will not help them find them. That makes sense. He receives a life sentence without the possibility of parole mm-hmm. for each of the five murders. Mm-hmm. After the trials in 2005, Nancy Robinson is finally going to file for divorce after 41 years of marriage. And she cites incompatibility and irreconcilable differences. You think? She's like, listen, I can handle the murder. No, I can handle the affairs and the crime. I could handle the And the, the embezzlement. But he abandoned those dogs. <laughs> Pretty much, bro. Like, Nancy, eventually, she was like, uh, I guess I should probably I mean, divorce him now. I have to say, honestly, to keep her family name out of it, I too would have been like, Oh, yeah, like, I'm just divorcing him because we're not compatible. Because if you're like, I'm divorcing my husband because he's a murderer and he's a felon I mean, and he's a blah, blah, blah. At like, this point, obviously, they, her kids are already going to suffer the consequences. Yeah. But she's trying to go out with grace. And frankly, it's a bit late. Apparently, Robinson's family, like, they didn't stand by him after the, all the evidence was compiled. They were like, he's guilty. Yeah, no. Like, they did not stand by him. And that is why, like, Nancy was like, yup, we're getting a divorce. I mean, I just, it makes me laugh too because, like, he's got this history of, like, yelling at his family and things like that. He's a horrible like, person. Well, after the evidence. And yeah. it's like, mm, no, yeah. I think I, before the evidence, you guys knew he was a bad person. Yeah. So, also in 2006, Stacy's daughter, who had been known since her faked adoption as Heather Robinson, wow. filed a civil suit against the Truman Medical Center in Kansas City, which is where social worker Karen Gaddis, who we talked about in the first part, worked. And apparently, the case was filed because the suit accused Gaddis of putting Robinson in contact with Stacy, Lisa Stacy, that is, mm-hmm. and her newborn daughter in 1984 after he told Gaddis that he ran a charitable organization providing assistance to unwed mothers of white babies. Basically, Heather said, you should not have put my mother in contact with this person without checking his credentials and without making sure that, you know, blah, 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 like he was a reputable person. But the thing is, is that Karen Gaddis has said that she didn't trust John Robinson. So I don't know, like, who actually put him in contact with Lisa Stacy. I'm pretty sure he went and found her himself. Yeah, because I was just about to say, like, she literally said she didn't do it. Yeah. So, well, she also could be lying. Like, you never know. I mean, I get that, but, you know. So... <sighs> In 2007, Heather and the hospital, so she really sued, she sued the hospital, not social worker Karen Gaddis. Yeah. But she had worked for the Truman Medical Center. Mm -hmm. So she reaches a settlement for an undisclosed sum, we don't know how much it is. Yeah. In which Robinson, in which Heather said she would split it with her biological grandmother, Patricia Sylvester. Heather won a second judgment in 2007, which prevents John Robinson from profiting for any future potential book sales or film rights that she makes. Which is like, okay, bitch, you want to film your life? Like, all right, he ain't gonna get no money for it i think she wrote a book okay i was like i wouldn't want to film my life i think she wrote a book and there's probably in documentaries and stuff like that like if she were to say like produce it he Uh, could potentially get money for his name uh, like but i don't know how that all works but you know just to make sure that he doesn't get any money or profit from that okay i mean that's valid yeah she she definitely got that that judgment and the judge was like you know bang the fucking gavel like we ain't paying this man no more money he said bang bang into the room pretty much i got this gavel Wait a little, let me hold you back. So, I'm so sorry. In 2006, the body of a young woman was also found in a barrel in an area of rural Iowa 
where Robinson reportedly had a business partner. The identity of the victim, whose remains forensics experts say could have been in the barrel for 20 years or more, and Robinson's possible involvement continue to, like, remain questions. Mm. Like, questions remain. And this is where it basically goes that Kansas and Missouri police note that the long stretches of time that Robinson remained unaccounted for, they fear that unfortunately there were additional undiscovered victims and he is never going to like tell i don't think he's he'll probably go to his grave like not saying anything about what he did because he is such a like vindictive person that he does not want to help anyone in any regard and he still hasn't claimed like guilt for any of these murders that's technically killers do though like it's very common and unfortunately it is what it is like Mm-hmm. And one of the investigators says he's maintained these secrets about what he's done with the women. He won't ever tell. It's the last control that he's got. There are probably other barrels waiting to be opened, other bodies waiting to be found. Unfortunately, in November 2015, the Kansas Supreme Court vacated the Troughton and Stacy murder convictions on technicalities. Ugh. They did uphold the Lewicka conviction and the accompanying death sentence. This ruling marked the first time that Kansas's highest court has upheld a death sentence since the reinstatement of capital punishment there in 1994. Mm -hmm. Robinson currently remains on death row at El Dorado Correctional Facility in Kansas. And lastly, I wanted to go over the victims just because this case can be a little confusing. I wanted to go over the victims that Robinson has been accounted for, basically. And, you know, there's very good proof that he did commit these if if not he was convicted yeah he's known for he's responsible for a total of eight homicides but unfortunately his victim tally remains unknown the following is a chronological summary of the victims that have been identified thus far 1984 paula godfrey aged 19 remains never recovered unfortunately 1985 lisa stacy age 19 never recovered 1987 Catherine clampett age 27 Never recovered. 1993, 1987, and 1993, he was in prison. Yes. 1993, Beverly Bonner, age 49, remains discovered at the storage facility in Raymore, Missouri. Mm -hmm. 1994, Sheila Faith, age 45, and Debbie Faith, 15, remains both discovered at the storage facility in Raymore, Missouri. 1999, Isabella Lewicka, age 21, remains discovered at Robinson's Ranch near La Cine, I think it is. La Cine, Kansas. That's a good fucking guess, because I don't know. I It's spelled interestingly. If you're from La Cine, Kansas. <laughs> no, please don't hit us up. Please uh, tell me how it's pronounced. And then, lastly, in 2000, his last known victim was Suzette Troughton, age 28, and her remains were also discovered at the ranch near La Cine, Kansas, as well. Man. So, we do, we want to acknowledge those victims and, you know, the what they went through and we hope that maybe maybe some other evidence can come forward with his other victims, and if not, that the families can maybe find some peace at some point. Yeah, you hate to think that there's also other women out there who have not been discovered. So. And their families are stuck wondering, and there's maybe they pain. have letters like that too. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really unfortunate, and yeah. it's just one of those things. Every time we talk about a case, even though we joke, you, you really have to consider the fact that there's... There's no such thing as a victimist crime, especially with the cases we discuss. You yeah. know, unfortunately, there is a lot of death. You know, there is a lot of people mm-hmm. who. And we're talking about real people. Yeah. Like these are stories now, but this is like the last murder victim happened what twenty years ago? Twenty years ago. Which that, is and like, that's not that far. And yeah. You also have to consider the fact that there are gaps in the timeline. Yeah. And there are women that are unfortunately probably unaccounted for. Mm-hmm. 
So that's really something you do have to consider. I mean, we know it's we know we joke around a lot, but we always like to make sure we acknowledge the victims. Yeah. Um, and the reason why we do this podcast is to basically bring awareness to these types of things, like yeah. in these cases as well. Like hopefully this makes people more aware of situations like this. Like I know that it's very easy for like some women to be manipulated online and stuff like that. So hopefully if you hear something like this type of story, like maybe it'll yeah. get to you a little bit. And I mean, let's be honest, it's really easy to manipulate anyone online. It's really easy to manipulate mm-hmm. anyone in person. So mm-hmm. it's just really a situation where you want you guys to look out. We want you to be aware of, like that this is still a reality. Mm-hmm. And also we want you to be aware of the fact as well that like these people are people. Yeah. And even though we tell their stories, it, there's so much more than that. Yeah. They're so, they're so much more than, like, the events that happen to them. Like, I cannot mm-hmm. tell you, every time you do research on these victims, there's family so interviews, sad. there's documentaries, there's all these things that talk about how good and how, like, kind and pure that these people were. Mm-hmm. And, like, we don't even get to go into depth on that and how, like, great they were as people or, you know, who they were. If we told the full life story of every single victim we discussed... It would be, like, day-long podcast. I mean, it's... It would... I mean, we just... It would never end because, I mean, these are... Even, you know, people who, you know, are like, oh, well, you know, Luwika was, you know, she was kind of a black sheep. It doesn't fucking matter. It yeah. doesn't mean she was a bad person. Yeah, it doesn't mean... So, no one it deserves mean, to be yeah. killed. And it doesn't mean, like, her family didn't love her. Yeah. So, it's just, like, you have to consider the fact that these are people. You need to fucking give a shit about them. I know this is a podcast, obviously, and you're like, okay, this is my 60-minute podcast. Get off your get off your fucking soapbox. Yeah. But, like... But this is why... I feel like this is why people listen to true crime, too, though. It's yeah. because somewhere deep down, like, the reason it fascinates people is because you can resonate and you can relate to these victims. Yeah. So. In some way or another. And if you can relate to the serial killer, I don't want to talk to you. You know what? If you can relate to the serial killer, hit me up. I would like to send you to a psychiatric ward. <laughs> I would like to get you in touch with a psychiatrist. I would like to give you a nice gift of shit in a box. Oh, it's my shit in a box, Pretty girl. much. Yeah, so that is... That's the case of John Robinson. Piece Fuck of shit, J-Rob. Hate that man's. Fucking... Literally, like, one of the worst humans ever. So... That's my case. Chloe will be doing the next case. Any ideas on what you're thinking? I know exactly what I'm doing. Well, she knows everyone. I know exactly what I'm doing. It's a topic that our mother recommended. You know what I'm doing. You know exactly what I'm doing. It's in the Google Drive. Yeah, Um, it's somewhere in there. It's another serial killer, of course. Oh. Yes, I already did my spooky episode, so I'm back to the true crime. We got to switcheroo on you. You know what they say, true Gemini. I got to show you both sides. True, it's Gemini season. Oh my God. (gasps) Oh my God. Um, But thank you so much for listening. Please do remember to hit us up on one of our socials. You can go ahead and give us a follow on Twitter. That is at Double Trouble TC. You want to give can, me a heads up on the Instagram? Yeah, you can send us a message on Instagram or you can comment or even follow us on Instagram. It's going to be double.trouble.pod. Yep. Hit us up on there. Hit us up on there. You can also hit us up on the uh, email. Uh, the Gmail. Know. I'm sorry. No, I, I <laughs> the Gmail people, email. I thought people would know that email and Gmail are both a source of email. But uh, that email address is double trouble pod at gmail.com. 
Please know we check our socials more often than we check our email. But you can still email us. You can still hit us <laughs> up. But I highly do recommend that you go ahead and reach out to us on our socials. Give us a follow on the socials, man. Dude, Show yeah. your support follow. by giving us a follow. Hit us the freak up, please. I I literally am out hit here tweeting stupid shit. Up, on my personal account, that is. But I also tweet memes on the fucking um, Double Trouble account because I am an idiot. Yes, we so. love the memes. So, go ahead... <laughs> Give us a follow, um, show your support, shout us out to a couple friends if you're listening to this. Hell I yeah. love all of y'all who are listening already. You guys are the fucking bomb.com, our true friends. And we want to remind you. Remember, stay out of trouble. But if you don't, keep, keep it double. double.